Hi, and welcome to Figure of Speech, a program from WRBH where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. This episode, we welcome on poet Ben Luton. Take a listen. Hi, folks. This is Ben Luton. I'm a poet in the New Orleans area. Today, I'll be reading a David Anton talk piece um, entitled The Existential Allegory of the Rothko Chapel, first published in Seeing Rothko and reprinted in Radical Coherency. We tend to underestimate the elusiveness of language in the hands of both artists and critics. Rothko made many eloquent comments about art, that is, many compared to most artists, and he wrote in a high rhetorical fashion, but his comments all engaged with a number of issues that were available in the conversations going on at that particular time among the artists, insider critics, or intellectuals of the world in which he lived. They were part of the scene. When I arrived on the art scene, I arrived in the late 50s, as someone just entering into conversations with artists, seeing artist studios. I didn't start writing art criticism till around 1964, and I found the rhetorical cloud around Rothko inadequate and tiresome. His paintings seemed to fit too poorly in the expressivist rhetoric of abstract expressionism and just as badly into Greenberg's quasi-historical, quasi-formalist discourse, and their popular access to a spiritual vocabulary was more than I could take. It seemed melodramatic and unsupported by anything more than its own eloquence. The paintings were certainly attractive, but so what? They invited close looking, but I couldn't identify with any of the rhetorical systems surrounding them at the time, a time during which I remember being attracted to the bluntness of Frank Stella's uninflected shields, the repetitive bands of the black paintings seemed to me flatly assertive of a situation we were then confronting. It seemed as if they were saying, all right, this is the cultural situation we're enduring. This is the industrial world. Let's take a look at it. It seemed to me this was what the minimalists were doing, although they may have been doing more than that. So I come from the other side of this. I was not originally an admirer of Rothko's paintings. I came to them later and after the fact, on somewhat different grounds. On these grounds, I'd been invited to give a talk at a Rothko conference in San Francisco last year. And in the course of the talk, I gave a brief account of some of what I took to be the real complexity of the chapel paintings. After the talk, an old friend, Bill Berkson, a New York poet and sensitive art critic of the period, when Tom Hess ran Art News and encouraged the kind of romantic and poetic criticism that characterized the magazine in those days but nevertheless a very sensible critic, came up to me and said, David, I was in the Rothko Chapel, and those paintings just looked black. Now, I had seen them years before, 
and I didn't remember them looking black at all. I remembered them as suffused with color, but I also remember that another sensitive critic, an intelligent critic whose work I knew fairly well, Arthur Danto, had also referred to these paintings as black. Now I have a great interest in fact, a greater interest in fact than many art critics seem to have, because art critics are involved not so much in description as an evocation, and evocation is pretty much what language is best suited for. We can't really describe a Rothko. We can talk about it, but we can't really describe it. In a certain sense, you can't describe anything. You can list some of its features and make some effort to say how they're fitted together, and by the selection of the features or the way you observe their connectedness, you wind up with a representation but you can't describe it to someone who hasn't seen it or something very like it himself. So I asked Bill, what was the weather like when you visited the chapel? As I remember, he said, it was raining heavily and it was a pretty cloudy day. You didn't ask them to turn on the lights, did you? He said it hadn't occurred to him that you had to ask them to turn on the lights. Now it turns out that the Rothko Chapel had a very odd relation to lighting. Rothko apparently had a great attraction to the idea of natural light. For a while he was committed to having no other lighting in the chapel at all. Now the idea of being committed to having no other lighting in a place like Houston, where it's muggy and rains often, and was built over a swamp, seems perverse, and you wonder what you could expect to see on a day that was dark and cloudy. You would have almost the same effect if you walked into a dark gallery in the late evening without any lights and tried to look at a Bob Ryman. Bob Ryman's white paintings would have become very gray, and at certain times, around midnight, say, you might have said, I've seen Ryman's black paintings. Rothko was apparently willing to take this kind of chance, but things worked out otherwise. A supplementary lighting system was installed in the chapel, but its light was provided apparently intermittently and in a somewhat mannerist relation to its necessity. Now, I was in Houston for some occasion. I think there was some kind of meeting. I would never go to Houston otherwise. I think it was a meeting of the College Art Association, at which I was required to interview faculty candidates for my university, which was the only reason I ever attended a College Art Association meeting. And being there, I figured I should go see the Rothko Chapel. I'd seen Rothkos before, many of them, and I'd viewed them with respect, if not enthusiasm. But this was a legendary work of very dark paintings with a controversial reputation and an out-of-the-way place, and I happened to be there. So I went to look at them, and when I walked into the chapel, I was astounded by the fact that they were full of color, dark color, but color nevertheless. When you walk into the chapel, you usually enter from the south side, the chapel is an octagon, 
and you look directly in front of you to the north end where you see an apse, and set back in this apse, you see a triptych of three very dark panels. They're very dark, but clearly marked by a painter's hand, lighting aside. I believe it's impossible for anyone other than a completely blind person not to see that these are painted panels that arrived at this level of darkness only after passing through a sequence of colored washes whose traces remain in unmistakable plum-colored undertones that seem to be there no matter what you think you're looking at. And I'm quite confused about how anyone can fail to see this. Whether you think this is important or not is another story, because you can still say, so what? These paintings don't immediately command your attention. They invite you to the possibility of paying attention by presenting themselves as a kind of Gordian knot. There are two ways to deal with the Gordian knot, Alexander's way and a knot person's way. In Alexander's way, he was presented with an incredibly intricate knot. He takes a sword and cuts it in half. This is the way of minimal art. Look, there's nothing here. There is nothing there but a severed tangle of strands. Yet you may be fascinated by the intricate sequence of over and underlapping strands and by the possibility of a coherent pathway that could turn it from a tangle into a knot that could somehow be decoded. So you may be fascinated by the knot character of these works. But why should I look at these black works? Why should I watch this process of adjustment of my eyes to this very dark set of panels? The answer is that this is curious. This man spent so many hours of his life working at this installation. This is not a stupid man. He's not an idiot. And he worked for a long time dealing with this intractable range of visibility at the edge of invisibility that itself is somewhat fascinating. How much of the darkness is a darkness you can see into? How dark is the dark? That's the first question I ask myself looking at this work. And I'm using myself only as an example of a characteristic or representative person who didn't come with a bias for Rothko, which is apparently shared by many people. There are apparently many people who can look at these paintings and instantly declare they're being absorbed into the chaotic dark of the infinite night. That's not exactly my response. But I turned around and looked behind me. I asked myself, what's behind me? Now Rothko, who made some very acute comments about his work, once said that he wanted his paintings to have the kind of presence that when you turned your back on them, you felt them still there, like the presence of the sun on your shoulders. That may not be an exact quote, but my memory will do, because we will have to be dealing with memory anyway as we try to deal with the chapel. It's inescapable. So I turned around and looked, and there was a single panel reminiscent of Rothko's classical paintings, the stacked paintings. There's a very visible reddish 
rectangle at the bottom that extends upward by two narrow vertical bands at its edges that continue and connect with a still narrower horizontal red band at the top of the painting to form a kind of window frame for a taller, darker, nearly black rectangle above it. But this painting didn't have any of the subtlety of inflection that would have invited you to look at it very closely in the beautiful way Tom Crow inspected one of the classic Rothko paintings. It didn't have those drizzled edges and the remarkable tiny flecks of color. This panel seemed to be there for a different reason. Sure, if you walked up and looked at it closely, you could find marks of its painting. A hand is not a machine, and even Frank Stella's can be regarded as having traces of a hand on them, if only in the way the tape was ripped off after he sprayed the paint on. If you're looking for a human hand, you'll find it, even in a Stella. So clearly, if you really want a hand in the painting in back of you, you can find it. I wasn't concerned about this. I wasn't about to justify it by handicraft or to demean it. I was just curious why this painting, whose format closely resembled the classic paintings, was so uninflected. And the only interpretation I could find for this painting was that it was there to remind us of Rothko's earlier work and set up a kind of polarity on the north-south axis between the uncompromisingly dark triptych on the north and the reminiscence of the classic work on the south from which he appeared to be taking leave. And this made me wonder, what is it he was taking leave of it for? I felt myself surrounded by something I couldn't see all at once, the very curious nature of the paintings, with an apparent similarity to each other in their degree of darkness that were still not quite the same. How similar were the panels? Looking north from the south, you could see the triptych set back in its apse, and the two single-panel paintings that flanked it on the angled walls to the northwest and northeast that were similarly dark and perhaps even less inflected. Were they equal in their darkness to the triptych or greater? Were they duplicates of each other? Without turning my head, I could also take in part of either the west wall or the east wall, each of which bore a triptych in which the central panel was slightly elevated above its two flanking panels. So these triptychs are intended to contrast with the apse triptych in their darkness or degree of inflection? Or only in their configuration? Are they the same or different from each other? It's hard to tell, because you can't look at them at the same time. Now, I had had an experience like this somewhat earlier. Nico Kalas, a very generous surrealist critic, he was the one who got me to write the art chronicle for culture, Lita Hornick's literary and art magazine. He was an old friend of mine, and Nico had at one point written or simply told me about a Rauschenberg painting known as Factum One, a colorfully spattered canvas that looked very much like an abstract expressionist work 
suggesting an impulsive and energetic application of paint, not exactly a Jackson Pollock, but still evoking an impulsive energy somewhat like that. But then Rauschenberg followed that work with Factum II, which was an exact copy of Factum I, undercutting the mythical status of spontaneity and improvisation and abstract expressionist work, and demonstrating the absurdity of its claims. Because you can't really read the degree of impulsiveness or calculation in the work of a painter from the distribution of paint. He can't be tracked by a critic the way the old frontier scout Shiftless Soul and Altschaller novels used to track the passage of Indians through the woods by how far apart the moccasin prints were and how deep or how disturbed the pathway was from which he could infer how long ago the Indian had passed through. How fast he was traveling, how tall he was, how much he weighed, his sex, his mood, and everything but what he'd had for breakfast. Although some critics of Pollock and D. Kooning seemed to read the mood of their Indians pretty well. But in this case, they were defeated by Rauschenberg's exact copy of Factum I and Factum II. Nico's argument sounded plausible to me. I cited it in an article on Harold Rosenberg's criticism. And then I had the misfortune of seeing the two paintings side by side. Factum II is not an exact copy of Factum I. If you bring the two of them together, they look similar, but different. They look as much alike as any two paintings in a series that was generated by the same procedure. In other words, there appear to have been some casual rules for getting the painted marks onto the surface of the canvas. A way of spattering from a row of paint cans containing different color paint, let's say, and they look about as much alike as any two paintings in such a series, but they don't look like identical twins. So I imagine Nico, who is terribly smart. Somehow in my mind, he feels present. Nico was only doing what everybody does with memory, remembering on the basis of a discourse he was himself involved in, which was beginning to feel fatigue with abstract expressionism and somewhat exaggerating the ideological role of the Rauschenbergs by a kind of hyperbole. The two paintings were surely not generated the way a Pollock was generated, which I take it was generated partly by alcohol, partly by an impulsive character, and partly by an idea that painting was supposed to be an intensely energetic activity while the Rauschenbergs were most likely done in a rather playful manner. The procedure may have been as casual as certain jazz performances, but not the superheated ones. You don't have to imagine hot jazz. You can imagine certain cooler jazz performances by someone like Thelonious Monk. Now, Monk may have been a very intense person, but I'd lived in the village in the 50s and 60s, and I'd seen him perform many times. And in performance, he had a playful and casual style in which he could get up and walk around the piano 
dropping occasional notes into the space like pebbles into a pond, or leaning over and hitting a tone cluster with his elbow in a way that was lovely but never gave you the feeling he was being torn apart by his musical decisions. And you can see that these Rauschenbergs are somewhat like that. And unlike the paintings in the chapel, you can hang them on the same wall and look at them side by side. While the chapel paintings call for comparisons, that the shape of the chapel and the size of the paintings won't let you physically make. What you want to do is figure out whether the four angled panels on the northeast and northwest, southeast and southwest, form a unit of similar or identical paintings, and how they stand in contrast to the three triptychs, of which the east and west triptychs form a subsystem in contrast with the north triptych. So I kept trying to figure out how I could master the space. But because this is a wraparound installation, all you can do is go up and look closely at the individual panels and try to remember them as you retreat to a distance at which you can take in three walls at a time, then turn and repeat this procedure with the other walls, all the time struggling to remember exactly what it is that you've seen. So it becomes a memory problem in which you begin to concentrate on trying to remember how intensely modeled is this panel, with what shade of color, how intensely modeled is that one, and in what part of the canvas. Nobody asked me to do this. I wasn't there to make a report or to write an essay. I was just trying to see what was going on. And as I was doing this, I thought I had it down. There was a moment when I thought I had the whole thing down, but then I realized that the light had changed. I was there in the middle of a sunny day, and a cloud must have passed, and if a cloud passes overhead, it changes what you can see. I realized that a single cloud passing over the central light source could change the degree of visibility and color of the painting. And this was beginning to make me very nervous as I was trying to figure out how I could discount the effect of the atmospheric condition on the lighting. I am someone who likes to look at artworks for a long time. I never understood the so-called ten-second glance. I can look at a painting for an hour or maybe two if it's the right kind of painting, even though I'm not basically known as a critic of paintings. I grew up on them, and I'm used to looking at paintings for long periods of time if they're worth looking at. And these paintings became very worth looking at. In fact, I was becoming very excited by the problem of looking and trying to figure them out. And I thought I'd even worked out a way to discount the atmospheric effects and even remember them. But then I had a disquieting feeling. I was thinking back to a time in the 60s when I had seen the so-called Black Reinhardts in a New York gallery. Ad Reinhardt is simpler than Rothko. In the dark, his darkness proposes a simpler paradigm. 
His paintings are also not black paintings. They invariably have blue and red undertones. Or more precisely, they're composed of very dark blue and very dark red, but so close to black that it takes intense looking to reveal it. I had written about this once for a German magazine called Das Kunstwerk many years ago. And they work like this. You're in a fully lit room with white or off-white walls to which your eyes are accommodated by fairly narrow pupils. But when you try to see into one of the dark paintings, your pupils start to dilate, but are afflicted by the glare of reflected light spilling into your field of vision from the white walls, which stimulates your pupils to contract. So you find yourself struggling to keep looking into the pool of darkness, willfully struggling to keep your pupils dilated against any stimulus from the gallery light. After a while, this produces a kind of intense strain, and you become slightly feverish from the strain, the feverishness of your feeling resulting from the eye strain produces a weird exaltation that becomes an analog for a kind of transcendence that is a fitful character of Reinhardt's painting. But all of his dark paintings do the same thing. This happens again and again and again with an insistency that reveals it as a parable for the transcendence of the art experience. This is effective and powerful. The Rothkos are not that simple. They're equally dark and produce a similar eye strain, but they don't produce a feeling of exaltation. What they do is produce a sense of anxiety. As you begin to realize that what you're seeing after a long interval of intense looking has modified your ability to see, the selective exhaustion of the dark registering nerves of the retina changes what you can see, but you don't know how much so. You're not sure whether what you're seeing, you're seeing now with the same visual capacity that you saw earlier. I was beginning to feel the stability of myself slipping as I found myself unable to stabilize my memory, and I began to suspect that Rothko was summoning me to another idea. I don't know if he knew what he was doing. I don't think artists always have to know what they're doing. Artists often do more than they know they're doing. There's an interesting book with an intriguing title by Stanley Cavell called Must We Mean What We Say? That might have been called Can We Mean What We Say? I don't know if it's possible to mean what we say. I don't even know if it's possible to say what we mean. Those, these two questions are not equivalent. It's very hard to say what we mean or to know what we mean, but it's possible to move forward what we mean through language. And that's in fact a job I engage with all the time. And I know how difficult it is and how often I fail at it. At least, I think I fail at it. I'm not sure about that either. But the Rothko is about the failure of the human ability to stabilize the world in relation to oneself, 
while that self is in transition and failing, as your eyesight is failing and your memory is failing, and you're very gradually on a path that eventually ends in your dying, as your eyes are fatiguing and your memory is straining to hang on to what you hope are the facts of the chapel, and then you remember, at least I remembered, that Rothko had been seen and described several times as staring long and intently into a sunset, watching the declining light. I don't think he was looking at the postcard beauty of the sunset. Nothing we know about Rothko suggests that. My friend Doug Messerly told me about a writing class he took once with Isaac Beshevis, singer at the University of Wisconsin. It was winter. It was late afternoon. The classroom faced west, and one sensitive student looking out the window suddenly cried out, My God, look at that beautiful sunset. At which Singer rose from the desk, walked slowly to the window, peered out and said, It's doing it again. I'm afraid I also feel that way about sunsets. I have no interest in the crepuscular, and I suspect that Rothko's attitude to sunsets was closer to Singer's than to the students. At least I'm pretty sure he had a less than passionate interest in the sunset as a romantic moment. But there is nevertheless the question of the effect of declining light on visibility. We have a lot of opportunity out here because we face to the west. We once lived in a house on the bluffs right over the water in Solana Beach, and we could hardly avoid seeing the sun go down. And when you watch it, there's always a curious perceptual question of whether the sun is slipping behind the ocean or sinking into it. And then there is the dark that advances from the east, coming to envelop the light in the west. Does the dark overtake it like a flood or mount as a barrier between us? And the sun, oh, we know astronomically that the sun hasn't moved, the light is still there, and that really the shoulder of the earth has simply rolled up between us and the sun, but their perceptual ambiguity remains. The way on a dark night you can see the stars as glittering fragments applied to the surface of a black curtain, or as small perforations opening onto a hidden world of light behind it. And these ambiguities had something in common with the way of some of Rothko's earlier paintings that often posed the question of where was the ground? Was it in the dark behind the light, or was the ground in the light itself? And sometimes it seemed that the upper part of a bright soft rectangle might lie behind the dark portion above it, but in front of what seemed the same dark below it in ways that appeared to contradict common color theory. The weirdness of the classic Rothkos was that they seemed to produce situations in which every commonplace notion of color and luminosity got contradicted. He has darks that seem like blunt interventions over passages of light, and darks that seem to be giving ground to colored light welling up below them. This is not the way of the chapel paintings. But there is a long relation between luminosity and darkness that my friend Sheldon Nottleman and his marvelous book on the chapel invokes 
because of the history of light as a subject. Probably everyone knows the fanciful essay by Panofsky dealing with the stained glass windows of the Cathedral of St. Denis that traces its involvement with light back to 6th century Neoplatonic writings on the theology of light. Light has always had a kind of imaginary power that can be invoked as an energy source, but also as a blinding obstacle, a fiery furnace, a flaming vortex. This is all part of the grand rhetoric of light that has its counterpart in pop writing and trash criticism, which is not to be despised as bottom feeders nourished by fragments that float down from discourses above them, because it may be that they well up from the bottom to nourish the elevated discourses above from sources in the womb of language itself. In a certain sense, we're all bottom feeders, working our way through the garbage dump of language. Language as we receive it is both a brilliant network of meanings and a garbage dump. All the stupid history of human culture is embedded in our language, along with most of its brilliance. So we're scavengers dealing with our garbage heap. So when we're dealing with the significance of light and dark in an artwork, what part of the meaning network do we invoke? Do we draw on the sublime rhetoric of the physicists at Almogardo, brighter than a thousand suns? or the trashy image of the mushroom cloud that we saw all the time in the 50s, which seems to have faded somewhat in the popular imaginations, with the brief moratorium on nuclear testing by the end of the 50s. I suppose after all those years of mushroom clouds and air raid drills, we got tired of the image of nuclear explosions, and by the 1960s, I don't think I knew anyone who gave a damn about the possibility of nuclear annihilation until the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. And even then, there was a kind of comedy about it. I don't want to rehearse the whole scenario of Adley Stevenson showing the nation unmistakable proofs of Cuban missile sites and aerial photographs that were indecipherable on a TV screen but I was living about 130 miles out of New York in a town called North Branch, an old farming community in western Sullivan County. The Russian ships were on their way bringing missiles to Castro. Kennedy had threatened a blockade, and I was standing in the bank at Jeffersonville waiting online to make a deposit when I got into a conversation with Charlie Summers, a sweet guy who raised free-roaming chickens and was also standing online. Charlie, I asked him, what do you think about the situation? Well, said Charlie, if we have to have it out with them, we have to have it out. Charlie, I said, how far would you say Cuba is from New York City? Maybe 1,500 miles, he thought. And how far are we from New York? About 120 miles as the crow flies. What percentage error you think it would take for people to ask afterward why North Branch was Cuba's prime target? Charlie turned white for the moment, but he still had a schoolyard 
in mind and a bully you had to deal with. Not the blinding blast over Hiroshima or Nagasaki. But there was another side to the luminosity of a nuclear explosion, a romantic scientific side that carried along with it the promise of the unleashed energy of nuclear fission, not merely the anxiety of the bomb. The 50s may have been the age of anxiety for some people, and probably to Rothko to some extent, but it was also an age of great promise, of scientific and artistic breakthroughs. The age of the semiconductor and the computer, and also of Rothko's classic paintings. I was taught physics by a man who'd worked on the Manhattan Project. He was one of the best teachers I ever had. And my sense of nuclear light was more mixed than this. There was something wonderful about nuclear energy then. It was a clean and inexhaustible source that wouldn't pollute the atmosphere with the hydrocarbons, dirty climate-destroying gases. It's just that its waste products would stick around for thousands of years and eventually kill you. But there was a wonderful promise in this new radiance, a kind of glowing in the dark that's still part of the metaphoric system we have to engage with as we try to interpret the paintings of the chapel, whose darkness may be the inversion of these images of light. Still, it's not so much that the chapel is playing with this structure, which it does do in the darkest part of the spectrum, but the instability it evokes in you and your sense of your human fallibility. It provides you a confrontation with a figure of your life experience, of its contingency, of how you can't control your fate because a cloud could pass overhead between you and the light that you can't control and you might not even notice, or what's worse, you can't remember. I can't remember the face of my father. Admittedly, he died when I was very young, but still, I'd seen his face. I should be able to remember it. I can't remember the face of some of my earlier girlfriends, which is maybe more important than forgetting the face of my father. I can call all of them up, but I can't remember exactly what they looked like. I can call up something like a schematic diagram. I can pretend that I remember, but to the degree that you can't remember, that part of you has died. And that part of you is dying that's losing its grip on what you've experienced. So the chapel becomes a parable of dying, not because of its somber coloring, but because it requires you to remember and undermines your sense of your ability to remember and identify with your position as a spectator. Now this is the big change in Rothko's work. He wasn't doing this in the classic paintings, though elements in some of the earlier work may have contributed to this way of looking. And I suppose we could say that for several years he was moving along a pathway toward this way of working. Certainly from the Seagram paintings, though they're more literary and their evocation of an entrance into an Orphic underworld, with their Pompeian crimsons, they're a little more obvious than one might have wished. And the Harvard murals are also interesting along this line, but the chapel paintings are purer and more uncompromising. The Seagram paintings are beautiful, but they're more obvious. 
and there's nothing obvious about the chapel, which is what makes it so effective. It's an uncompromising, difficult, and secular work, challenging your possibilities as an observer. And there's nothing seductive about it, so that if you don't respond to its challenge, that's fine. There's something democratic and elitist about this work that doesn't give a damn if you don't want to experience it. But if you try to experience it, it offers you a confrontation with the existential condition that ultimately characterizes our experience in the world. Spoken at San Diego in 2003. Well, that wraps up David Anton's The Existential Allegory of the Rothko Chapel, a beautiful poem in a modified prose format. Have a blessed evening and a good night. Thank you. That was writer Ben Luden. And that's our show. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. Thank you for listening.